Thank you, Levi and Brianne. So a few announcements I'd like to make. We have continued to uh, do a little bit of a different format right now because there are still people that are at home and watching this live stream or watching the podcast. So we are waiting to put the announcements in prayer now because this is the part where we start recording and and uh, post online for them to be able to uh, watch it and hear the announcements too. So Eventually, we may go back to the other format, but uh, just in case you're wondering why we're doing things a little different, there is some thought behind it, uh, I assure you. It may not always be absolutely correct, but there is some thought behind it, and we try to do what we can. And uh, one of the things that I, I think would be appropriate would be maybe announcing right now that the, the elders are continuing to monitor and assess the various COVID recommendations and policies that are in place. We assure you we hear the same news that you do. We know the changes and the things that are going on around us. And uh, we do talk about those and, and try to figure out the best and, and appropriate times to make the changes for the, for the congregation. Uh, again, there's going to be some that Maybe don't think that we are making the right decision. We're sorry about that, but we are trying to make the best decision. And we, we do seek to follow the Lord in this and, and to seek his wisdom. And uh, our, our desire is not only to make it where it's possible for as many of us to be able to come back together and fellowship together like we are today, but to do it safely. And uh, if there's anything we can do to make that happen, um, that's, that's probably where we're going to be going. So... Uh, as soon as we can make changes and lighten up, for instance, the mask, everyone's probably wondering when do we get rid of the mask. I don't think any of the elders uh, would fight um, getting rid of them just as absolutely quickly as we can. But uh, but right now we, we probably need to continue doing that. So just just adhere to the current policies and, and, and guidelines that we're asking you to follow. And we thank you. We thank you that you are doing that, and we thank you for the the grace that you are extending to your brothers and sisters and to us as leaders um, in following some of these things. We know that they're not comfortable, but uh, we will we will make changes as soon as we can. Um, community group, the Fortuna community group. I just realized that I haven't been keeping that up on the calendar quite. Uh, I guess in the last several weeks. I uh, just want to make sure that you know that it is going on on Tuesdays. It is meeting here at the church at 6 o'clock. Um, there's reasons for that, so if you're attending or want to attend that group, please continue coming to the church. And I think typically they're using the side door, so if you see the front gate is closed, don't worry about it. Come around to the ramp and come in that way. Um, sometimes it's easier just to come around on the side instead of through the through the gate. Uh, the women for the, of the word at meeting on Thursday mornings. That's down at uh, our house down the road. The address is on the calendar. And uh, daily breads are available. If you want a daily bread and you're not here, uh, if you're watching us online, just get a hold of one of the elders and we'll make a point of getting them to you. And there's also still some of the small pouches that we had purchased for the moms. 
there's enough there for any lady or any young gal who wants one. Feel free to take one. Uh, I don't think it says anything on it necessarily about being a mother. So uh, if, if, if you're not, that's okay. Take one. If you have a, something that you could use it for. I, I, I will admit as a guy, not quite sure what it would be used for, but I think you guys know what those things are used for. So, uh, and forgive me for, for that, that, uh, probably chauvinistic uh, comment, but, uh, it's probably more ignorance than chauvinism, I assure you. <laughs> so, um, we are wanting to uh, do some uh, activities or, or opportunities to be able to get together in fellowship. And as we're coming out of this uh, COVID time, and one of the ways we would like to do that is on uh, the, the, each month during the summer, we are wanting to host a luncheon here immediately after the church service. It'll be on the second Sunday of each month. The first one will be June 13th, so in a few weeks. And we'd invite you to stay. Uh, you got to eat lunch my, in most cases, so uh, might as well have it here with us and spend some time fellowshipping with us. We'll have some hamburgers and hot dogs. Um, if you can't eat that, you know, maybe bring something that you can eat. But uh, just it's primarily to give an opportunity for fellowship. So uh, we hope that you'll do that. Um, and uh, again, it'll be on the second Sunday of each month after that through the summer. So I believe that's all the announcements we wanted to make sure you had. And um, let's open in prayer and then we'll get started on today's sermon. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come here together and to worship you. We thank you that you are our God, our Father our Creator, the one who loves us, the one who provides for us and, and uh, protects us. You're our rock and our strength. We thank you, Father. We thank you that you have brought us together into this local body to be brothers and sisters with not only our brother Christ, but with each other. And we pray that you'll help us, Lord, to... to uh, work on our relationship with with each other. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come now and hear from your word and even thinking of the kids as they're next door, hearing a lesson and talking about Jesus and who he is. We pray that you will be with the teaching that takes place today. We pray that you will be with all the ears, including the little ears next door, open their ears and their hearts and their minds to to hear the truth, to hear uh, your message, and that it will prick their hearts. Lord, we pray for any that may be here that may not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today might be their day of salvation. And Lord, we pray for each of us who are here and know you as our Savior, that Lord, if there's things we need to work out in our lives between you and us, We pray that you'll drive us to do that. That you'll help us to be men and women who seek confession and repentance of sin quickly, confessing it to you. Help us to 
to work on our relationship with you and our walk with you through your word and your Holy Spirit, that we might be people that are good examples to our community and to each other, representing Christ as his ambassador. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to be spending a little bit of time with a small and relatively unknown book of the Old Testament. I've been thinking back over the last week or so as I've been working on this, and I don't know that I recall ever hearing a sermon on Habakkuk. May have, but I sure don't remember it. And my guess is that's probably pretty common with everyone here. The book of Habakkuk is among the list of minor prophets that are in the back or the end of the Old Testament. But as Bob said last week, this isn't to suggest that it's minor because it's not important. It's only considered minor because it's brief compared to the major prophets that tend to be quite lengthy and covering quite a bit of information. It is worthy, though, of our attention, as all the books of the Bible are, of course, because it contains an essential revelation regarding our righteous standing before God that we'll take a look at a little more here shortly. We don't know very much about the writer, Habakkuk, who identifies himself as a prophet. And we can only infer from a few things that he states in his letter that he was probably a Levite. The details of the book covers a period of time in biblical history towards the end of the 7th century B.C., a long time ago. Habakkuk prophesied during the final days of the Assyrian Empire, and at the beginning of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. I have to go back quite a ways to think of my history books of dealing with some of this time frame. But it's helpful to understand what's going on, and that's what I seek to kind of put out before you here. The northern kingdom, remember, the, the Israel is split. The northern tribes called Israel. The southern couple tribes called Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had previously been invaded by the Assyrians and many of its citizens had been taken off into exile into various parts of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were the dominant kingdom at the time this is taking place. The northern kingdom of Israel had rebelled against God. And if you remember, as we've been going through the Old Testament over the last months, that they were warned what would happen if they rebelled and turned away from God. And yet we continually see that the people, while there were times when they followed God and seemed to be obedient and followed the law, there were many more times 
where we're told that they were wicked kings and the people did what was wrong. They were judged, just as God said would happen earlier in the Scriptures. In this book of Habakkuk, the southern kingdom of Judah, which is what people is mentioned and, and discussed here, apparently are following in the footsteps of their cousins to the north. Something a little bit unusual about Habakkuk is that the book is not quite typical of prophecy books that we have in the Old Testament. Those typically involve God speaking through his prophet who writes down the message, giving a message of warning or hope to the Israelites and the the Jews. Instead, this book gives details of a conversation that Habakkuk is having with God. Habakkuk has been watching, seeing, observing, interacting with the community and the people around him. If there was a newspaper going around at that time, he probably knew all the headlines. He saw what was happening in in the kingdom. And he was seeing all the sinful activity of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, who was their ruler at the time, and the ruling class who supported him. His administration, the wealthy people who made up the Sanhedrin or the various people that supported him. The prophet Jeremiah, who also prophesied around this same time, recorded in his book about Jehoiakim that he was very bloodthirsty and that he was a very dishonest king. And from what I've seen in my lifetime watching leaders in our country and leaders in other nations around the world, that where there is a dishonest ruler, there's usually dishonest people around him, supporting him, and gaining benefit of some sort from his activities. In the opening verses of chapter 1 of Habakkuk, he infers that he had been praying for a long time about the condition of the people of Judah and the sins of her rulers. So turn there with me, and we'll read a little bit. If you're not sure where to find it, it's uh, in the later books of the Old Testament, between Nahum and Zephaniah. I'll give you a second to turn to that. We'll be reading from the first chapter, starting in the first verse. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. 
So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk here asks God a question that I would imagine is one that many Christians through history have asked, especially once they become more aware of the human condition and the sinfulness of the world around us and the sinfulness of ourselves. And that would be, why does it seem that the wicked prosper? And especially at times when the people of God seem to be suffering. Maybe you've had that thought. Looking around and going, you know, I try to do everything right and I can never seem to get ahead. But then you see Joe Blow out there doing the things he's doing and he always seems to be in a much better financial position or be very frustrating. Habakkuk had long observed the people around him and he saw the perversion of justice in the courts in favor of the rich. Maybe the judges were accepting bribes. Maybe they were using their influence to, to, to rule differently in a case for someone who was wealthy or supposed important compared to someone who was poor and not of great importance. Violence was going unpunished. Or worse, if you were poor or not influential, you probably received a harsher punishment than someone who was rich. And sit and wonder, why? Why do I get punished and that guy doesn't? People openly sinned without shame. And society seemed to be unraveling and at odds with itself. It sounds like I could be describing our own country's current conditions, doesn't it? It's amazing how Scripture does that sometimes. A backup asked the question because he thought that God seemed to be indifferent. To Judah's sin. All this is going on, God. Look at all the sin and wickedness that takes place. When are you going to judge? When are you going to make it all right? Habakkuk expressed surprise and anguish that God seemed inactive in the face of blatant violations of His law. The things that were taking place should not have been taking place in a righteous nation. The Jews were violent and practiced injustice, which should have been punished. So often when someone seeks to question God, as Habakkuk is doing here, it's done with arrogance or for disingenuous reasons. And to do that would be sin. But that's not how Habakkuk is doing this. We see 
a different attitude with Habakkuk. And we see the same type of attitude with the psalmist in the Psalms. Where occasionally you'll see the comment or the question, How long, O Lord? As we see today, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long, O Lord? The question is asked in faith because Habakkuk trusts God's holy character and knows that God's righteous judgment is coming. So he asks this question, but yet he asks it in a way that he knows his God and he knows how God will respond. Yet he wonders why God's wrath seems to be delayed. You read some of the stories of the Old Testament and you can't help but think that. How evil can man be and get away with it before God steps in? How evil can our people be today before God steps in? Thank goodness that God is patient. And he does extend abundant grace on his people. But we need to understand that our loving God, who is merciful and gracious, will also punish us if we continue in sin. Especially habitual sin. He is our Father, and he loves us. And because He loves us. He will discipline us if we move away from Him and sin against Him. Be assured, Scripture says throughout its pages that evil does not go unpunished. It may not be in our timing. It may not be in our way but it will be punished in God's timing and in this way. God gave Habakkuk an unexpected response. Look at verse 5 and 6 where it says the Lord answers, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And then if you continue reading the next verses, it continues to talk about the Chaldeans. God was not blind to the sins of Judah. He sees what the rulers are doing. He sees what the people are doing and the violations of his law. But his decision on how he was going to punish them was surprising to Habakkuk. As I'm studying this and reading this, I am I, not fully sure why, because we have the history of the northern tribe that had just been hauled off 
for the same thing by Assyrian, the Assyrian um, nation. So I'm not sure why he's struggling with this, but obviously it's a, a point of contention for him. But he says, God says that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans and use them as his instrument of wrath. He's going to use the Chaldeans to punish the people in Judah. Scripture uses the name Chaldean or Babylonian interchangeably. So when you hear one, it's the same people in the sense of the, the, the nation that was involved. One of their great rulers that might be recognizable to people who have read the Bible or have been in church for some time would be King Nebuchadnezzar, who was their second ruler and was involved in uh, documented, I guess, in a number of books of the Old Testament. The Babylonians had eventually become strong enough to defeat the Assyrian Empire that had controlled them. The Babylonian army was a ferocious army, very fierce, violent, who frequently not only pillaged the nations that they invaded, but they would also take large groups of the people that lived there and move them and spread them out throughout their empire. And then take people from those other countries and replant them back in the place they removed them from. They displaced the nations. It made it harder for those nations to rise up against them. Remember the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was among the people that the Babylonians carried away from Judah to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. The fact that God was going to use the Babylonians as the instrument of wrath had also been announced in other Old Testament books in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. All of them are contemporary with each other and documenting some of the same time frame. Kind of interesting that while God is dealing with a backup and giving him this vision, He's also working with these other prophets, giving them their visions and their messages that they're to write. The shock to Habakkuk of God using this ungodly nation to punish God's chosen people brought about a theological dilemma to Habakkuk. He struggled with this. He might have even sat there thinking, now I'm regretting, Lord, calling on your judgment on your people. I mean, why can't you just punish the ungodly among the nation and restore us? You don't have to use this wicked people to come and bring out vengeance on us and and haul us off like they probably will do. How could God use the Chaldeans to judge a people that would possibly be more righteous than they are? God told Habakkuk that he would judge the Chaldeans, though. 
that even though he's using this wicked army, they're not getting away with their own sin. They will be punished, but he's using them for this moment, for this time. And they would be judged because of their own arrogance and their own violence and their own idolatry. They'll answer for their own evil and sin. But this only partially answered Habakkuk's concerns. He accepts the fact that the Lord had chosen the Chaldeans to judge his people. And he affirms that there will be a a remnant of the people of Judah who will survive. God is telling him the future, letting letting him know what's going to be taking place. And he accepts that. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. He knows that not everyone will, will die in, in the invasion. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. For Habakkuk and for any other child of God, anyone calling themselves a Christian, to rightly ask him questions, to question God about something he may be doing, means to, to, do, to do it properly, to do it in a way that is, is not sinful, which is very easy to fall into, is to ask him with the willingness to accept his answer regardless if we understand it or not. Because we don't fully understand God. We're the creature. He's the creator. He is far greater than we are. He'll do things that we don't understand or, or, or don't understand fully. There's many things in Scripture that, that he... He reveals to us that we still struggle to try to explain thoroughly. Some of it we just have to accept in faith. Sometimes when we ask questions of God, He may not ever even answer. He may not give an answer. For He's under no obligation. But the Lord does give a partial answer to Habakkuk in his letter. Doesn't answer it completely, but he gives him some of it. But one of the things that he points out and brings about is reminding Habakkuk that he is divinely sovereign. And that he is inscrutable in the sense of we can't understand him fully. Not possible for us to fully understand his actions. We can only know God by what he reveals to us. When God used the Babylonians, he wasn't justifying or giving them a pass for their own sins. But he's able to use in his, in his, 
abilities to, to do things far greater than we can understand. He is even able to use evil and wicked things that take place to somehow come around to glorify him and to be for the best for us in the end. Not that the circumstance itself was, but in some way he brings that around and uses even bad things in life. The Babylonians were an evil nation and he will judge them. God is still holy when he uses wicked people to achieve his purposes. And again, even if we fully understand it or fully understand why or how it takes place, many times we won't. A backup wasn't questioning God because he thought that God was making a mistake though. He was actually questioning God because he knew and trusted in the Lord's righteous character and how God protects his own character in name. So he is actually asking him in the sense of, God, how long is this going to take place? This is a shame and a blemish against your name. This is your holy people that are doing this. Backup's knowledge of God's purity and holiness made it inconceivable to him that God would use this wicked empire to punish his sinful people. In the beginning of chapter 2, it states that he knew there had to be an explanation. And he commits to waiting patiently for God to make it known to him. God was gracious and chose to reveal some and told a backup that it would come in a vision. And he told him to write it down, which is why we are able to look at it today and study it. A backup did wait patiently until God gave him the vision, which came in God's own timing, which is always the case. While we may think that judgment is delayed or that God ought to work a lot faster in our lives or in our communities, God only works in his own timing. A backup's understanding and trust that God fulfills his promises is why he was able to persevere until the Lord showed him the vision and the answer. And this is the essence of faith. And it is by this faith that we're told in chapter 2, The righteous find life. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This statement that the righteous shall live by his faith is extremely important. 
Those that God calls righteous do not find life by doing the right thing. That doesn't make you righteous. That's why the Pharisees, for instance, when they were trying to live their perfect, orderly life, Jesus still can look back at them and call them hypocrites and vipers because they weren't righteous. Even though they were trying to do the right thing in their own minds and in their own efforts. But trying to do the right thing is important. It's not to be thrown out with the wash water. But the righteous find life by completely trusting that God will act according to His character and keep His promises that He's made to His people. A righteous person is one who believes that so much that no matter what comes, they'll stand firm knowing that God will accomplish what He said He will accomplish and do what He said He will do. Habakkuk was told that the righteous are those who, especially in days of trouble, our nation has just come through some days of trouble. The righteous are those, especially in the days of trouble, believe God and His Word despite what they can see with their limited vision and understand with their limited ability. We might be able to ask, why did God allow this to take place? Why are we struggling through these hard times? Why as a, as a church are we having to shut down for periods of time and wear a mask for periods of time and all the things that are happening, the struggles that we're doing? Of course, all these things would be very minor if we looked at some of the churches around the world that are struggling with much more dangerous and risky things. This kind of belief requires a complete entrusting of oneself into the hands of the Lord alone. A commitment to walking by faith and not by sight. This means looking beyond your present circumstances in confidence, in confident assurances that God will fulfill all of His promises. It means giving up on all of our own efforts to try to attain a right standing before God by just trying to do the things that we think is right. For no one can put himself fully into the arms of Christ unless he believes everything that God told us about us and our salvation. The remainder of the book of Habakkuk shows the reader what it means to live by faith. But I'm going to transition a bit into the New Testament where we'll see that the Apostle Paul expounded on this same verse in Romans and Galatians. Turn to Romans chapter 1 for, with me. A couple of these verses I think are important for us.
Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed, this is Paul speaking, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We just read that in the backup, right? Paul explains that it has always been God's way to justify sinners by grace on the basis of faith alone. He's taken that verse from the backup and saying, you know, this is how you are to be made righteous. But the people in the Old Testament, it was the same. It was the same way. In the Old Testament, the sinners were saved on the basis of their faith. The only difference is they had to kind of look ahead to what was going to take place where we have the benefit of looking back at what took place. One of the things that we redo every week as we have communion together is looking back at what Jesus did for us. Paul writes in Galatians 3, Reading, starting at verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul writes here that no one has ever been declared righteous before God except through faith. And that includes the Old Testament people. I'm running short of time. There's other verses I would have liked to read, but I'll just tell you where they're at and hopefully maybe you can take a look at them later. But God established Abraham as a pattern of faith for us to be able to look at. And he even calls him the father of all who believe. Uh, I'm going to actually read a couple verses there. Um, this is Romans 4:11. He received the sign of circumcision as a, as a seal of the righteousness that he had had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe 
without being circumcised, so their righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but would also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And this, this is building the picture Paul is doing in the, these teachings of, of faith and how Abraham was known for his faith and how he becomes the father to the human father to all of us who come to Christ in faith and who believe. Habakkuk then concludes going back to uh, the end of Habakkuk so I can wrap up here. He concludes with asking God for a new demonstration of God's wrath and mercy such as he had carried out in the past with the nation of Israel. And he goes back to some symbolic pictures or some pictures of what took place in the Exodus and the time in the wilderness wandering and how God interacted with his people and blessed them and punished them and blessed them and punished them. But he's asking him for a new demonstration of God's wrath and his mercy, even as he did in the past. And he closes with a confession of faith and trust in God in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. Habakkuk uses language that reflects um, back to their early history because it's something that meant a lot to the Israelites and to, the, to those in Judah. These are things that would be immediately bring up uh, pictures in their head or, or reminders of stories that they have been told by their ancestors of God's love and provision for the people. And then Habakkuk ends knowing that God is his strength and praises God for his sustaining grace and sufficiency. So even though Habakkuk only is made up of three chapters, we see that there's a lot going on in the New Testament that points back to some of the texts from Habakkuk that is important to us today as Christians. I couldn't help but think as I was wrapping some of that up, uh, I was studying what a great God we, we worship. That here he had this little book written and documented by a prophet so that we could see what was going on in that time of history, but also see where he's going with it and the use of it in the future and in the New Testament days and in the church today. We use a small book and the other books of the canon of Scripture to learn about him and his character. He shows us how we're to live. And most of all, he shows us of our need of a Savior because of our sin. Even as Judah had great sins going on in the people and the rulers, so do we. All of us need a Savior. If you're here today and you don't know what all this is that we're talking about, salvation and needing Jesus, 
I'd invite you before you leave today after the service to come talk to me. I'd love to be able to sit down with you for a few minutes and, and show you what some of this is. So keep reading. If you've been following us in the uh, reading program that we've been doing, you're, you'll be reading Habakkuk sometime this week and some of the other smaller, minor prophets. Look as you're reading for some of those verses that jump out at you. I, my guess is that there will be some that you'll look at and go, well, that sounds familiar. The verse in chapter 2, verse 4, when I read through it, I'm like, Wow, that's a verse that you see a lot in the New Testament. So look for those verses. Look for those points. So, so Levi, if you and Rand can come up and lead us into, into a time of communion. If you didn't grab one of the prepackaged cups, they're out on the table. Uh, use this opportunity to go out and get one, and right after the song, we'll... We'll have communion together. Wash me, 
Hebrews three twelve through 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. For taking communion together frequently is to help us to remember the gift of God that he's given so freely at a great cost. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. We take it together because we're a church of believers. Who should be exhorting one another frequently, to flee from temptation and to remain strong. This is not a battle that we are supposed to be fighting by ourselves. That's why we are in an assembly. That's why we are in a local church. It's so we have brothers and sisters who can help us and encourage us. Thump us on the head when we need to be thumped because we're doing something we're not supposed to be doing. That's what family does. And I think we, especially in the Western church, have moved away from that. We're afraid to confront each other when things come up. Maybe because we are afraid that we might be confronted when we do something wrong. But that is the purpose of being together in a church, is to exhort each other and encourage each other. We all should be working and striving to be faithful in this walk of, of the Christian walk and our calling and encouraging each other to be just as strong. We need Christ and we need each other. In 1 Corinthians 11, 
Paul tells us that he received from Christ the format that we should be using here and the message behind it where he says, I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God bless you. Thank you for coming today. If you're listening online, we thank you for taking the time to do that. We look forward to being back together again sometime in the near future. And God bless you this week. Don't forget whose child you are. Stand as we close.